Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of So Important. My guest today is Ms. Dina Gold, who has written a remarkable memoir that is really like no other. The book is entitled Stolen Legacy, Nazi Theft and the Quest for Justice at Krausenstrasse 1718 Berlin. It tells the story of how Ms. Gold, operating with very little to go on, hunted down a building located in Berlin that she believed rightfully belonged to her family, but had been taken from them by the Nazis in 1937. But what I've just described only skims the surface. This is Dina Gold's story, and I'm going to turn to Dina now to share with us this remarkable adventure. Dina Gold is a former investigative reporter and television producer for the BBC. She is on the Council of the Jewish Film Festival in Washington, D.C., and on the board of the D.C. JCC. It is an honor to have Dina with me. And Dina, welcome to the show. Well, I'm delighted to be with you. Thank you for inviting me. Well, absolutely. And usually I start the show by asking my guest what motivated them to write the book. But I think that's pretty integral to the story. So with your permission, I'd just like to jump right in. That's fine. All right. So I'm wondering if we can start with a little family history. And can you tell us a little bit about your great-grandfather, Victor Wolf, who he was, what he did, and how the building that we're going to discuss came to be? Victor was the son of my great-great-grandfather, Hyman Wolf, who founded a fur company in Pomerania, northern Germany, in 1850. And Victor took over this fur company from his father, and he really developed it into an international success. He was so uh, good at, at business, that he, and he made so much money, that he was able to buy land in 1907 in central Berlin in the Mitte district and hire a renowned architect to um, construct for him a magnificent six-story building. It fills an entire block. It runs from Krausenstrasse to the parallel street, Schutzenstrasse. And this building was to be the headquarters of the fur company, the H. Wolf Fur Company. And the H. Wolf Fur Company was very well established and very known throughout Germany, wasn't it? And not only Germany, yes, it was the largest fur company in Germany at the time. It was a rival to something called Revillon Frere, which was a Paris uh, fashion company dealing in furs. And um, Victor Wolf had offices literally all over the world. They bought pelts and brought them in from Canada and Russia. And he had offices in Copenhagen, in London, even in Moscow, and as far away as Melbourne, Australia. So they were an international company, very well established, but it was in the 1930s and some terrible things were happening in Germany. And your great-grandfather's building ended up in the hands of the Nazis. Victor uh, died in 1926, and the building by then was used as offices for other Jewish textile and clothing companies. It was basically a rental business. And then, of course, the Nazis came to power. They acquired the building next door for the Reichsbahn. Then they saw that number 17, 18, which was owned by my family, was owned by Jews and the mortgage was foreclosed on. The family had a mortgage with something called the Victoria Insurance Company, and they foreclosed. And instead of putting the building up for auction to the highest bidder, the building was sold directly to the Reichsbahn, Hitler's Railways. And what I discovered much later was that the price paid was 40% less 
than had been paid for the building next door, number 1920. And why do you think that was? Of the Jewish ownership. Yes. My family was Jewish. The family next door, which had defaulted on their mortgage, in fact, and had been foreclosed on quite quite correctly in, in terms of a business model, uh, they got 40% more per square foot than my family got. You said that this was bought by the uh, railways. Yes. What happened at the time, in 1937, Albert Speer, Hitler's architect, was redesigning central Berlin, and he needed office space for the railway architects who were enacting his plans. And that's what the building was used for, to house architects. Let's talk about how you first discovered the existence of the building and what led you to pursue this with such passion and vigor and determination. And it was a very special grandmother that inspired you, wasn't it? Yes. My mother's mother, Nellie Wolfe, she had married Victor's oldest son. He had two sons. He had one called Herbert, who was my grandfather, and a younger one called Fritz. Nellie had married Herbert. And Nellie uh, used to come and visit us in London from where she lived in Haifa in Israel and would take me on day trips out to the galleries and to patisseries and she would regale me with stories of her life in pre-war Berlin and what a glamorous life it was, going to cabarets, going skiing holidays. She had cooks and maids, chauffeurs. And she would say to me, you know, when we get our building back, we'll, we'll be comfortable again. She firmly believed that the Nazis had stolen some business building from the family, and she desperately wanted to get it back. But she couldn't get it back because it was in East Berlin, in former East Germany, and it was completely impossible to launch a claim for restitution in the communist countries. So this was all her dream. And my mother would say, ignore her. What's the point of looking back in life? You can't live your life like that. And she would dismiss Nellie's stories as either fantasy or dreams and just say, put it out of your mind, forget it. But I didn't forget it. I listened to her stories and I remembered them. Now, your mother is a pretty important part of this whole story, isn't she? Yes, she is. She she never really wanted me to pursue this. She got on with life. She had come to England at the age of 14 to go to school on her own. The rest of the family remained in the British Mandate for Palestine. And she had uh, gone to uh, become a nurse. She needed to get a, a job when the war broke out. She nursed in London all through the Blitz, the German Blitzkrieg of London. She met my father. She got married. She stayed in England, whereas the rest of the family all became Israelis. And my mother uh, never look, believed in looking back in life. She was very positive and said, you know, you have to live for the here and now. But she did remember the building. Yes, I, I used to talk to her about the building. And she would say, oh, you know, forget it, forget it. And I said, but what do you remember? You must have memories. I know you were only a child, but surely you remember something. And in fact, I recorded her and I'll play that to you. Oh, yes, the treat was to go with my father and be allowed to go downstairs into the cellar and jump on the piles of furs. But he used to say to me, you can jump on the rabbits and you can jump on the other things, but you mustn't jump on the ermine and you mustn't jump on the uh, mink. Those two piles you mustn't jump, that pile you're allowed to jump. She was a remarkable woman in her own way, wasn't she? Yes, she she certainly was. Um, she was very feisty, very tough. 
and strong and would say to me, don't look back in life, don't listen to Nellie's stories. And I would say, well, I'm fascinated by them. What led you to, to listen to what your grandmother Nellie was saying and to pursue this adventure? Well, I never totally dismissed Nellie's stories. I thought there might be something in them. And I was just determined that if there had been an injustice committed, then it was incumbent on me to try and get to the bottom of it. Now, I I must uh, say to you here that our family did not suffer like so many other families. And it is worth remembering, as Professor Walter Reich, who is the former director of the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum, has said, and I quote him, the Holocaust, the project of exterminating Europe's Jews, was an immense act of murder, but it was also an immense act of theft. The murder was, of course, the incomparably greater crime. The dead could never be brought back to life. I totally agree with him, and we must never lose sight of that. Uh, Yes, uh, people lost property, but millions were murdered. So you decided you were yes. going to do this. Yes. You had a, you were an investigative journalist, yes. so you knew what to do. What were some of the first things you did, and how did that lead you to Berlin? Well, as luck would have it, I went on a trip to Israel, and I knew I had a cousin there, and I contacted him. We didn't know each other, but I found him, and I said to him, you know, I've heard all these stories. Uh, do you have any paperwork? Because I have none, nothing. And he said, actually, I do. I've got an old suitcase. When are grandfather died and we shared the same grandfather, Herbert Wolf, Nellie's husband. He said when he died, I gathered up all sorts of old documents, put them in a suitcase and would you like to have a look? So I said, oh yes, I'd love to. Yes, please. So I went round to his apartment and we opened up this battered old leather suitcase and we rummaged through all these old papers and there in amongst all sorts of stuff that we didn't know what it was, we found an old yellowed singed Uh, letterhead with an address on it. H. Wolf, and it said Krausenstrasse 1718 Berlin. I thought, ah, I wonder if that is the building that Nellie talked to me about. And as luck would have it, I was also working for the BBC covering the combined German elections, which occurred in uh, December 1990, a year after the Berlin Wall fell. And I was in Bonn. We had, working for the program, a German researcher, and I asked him if he could help me in any way, and it didn't take him long to find an old 1920s business directory, and in there he discovered an advert for H. Wolf, a furrier, also Krausstrasse 1718. I thought, hmm, it's looking rather hopeful. I think I found the address. So, after the elections were over, I flew to Berlin And I decided I really need to go and have a look at this building. And the year is 1990. Yes. And what did you have with you? I had actually only that advert that the researcher had found for me, the 1920s business directory advert, which said H. Wolf, Krausenstrasse 1718. I put that into my coat pocket and off I went. I got in a taxi, gave the address. We passed the Berlin Wall with all the graffiti on it, turning to the right, two blocks from Checkpoint Charlie, and there was this enormous six-story, dirty, grubby building with flags outside and gold plaques on at the front. And I got out, and of course I got somebody to take a photograph of me, and then I 
thought, well, what do I do now? Shall I get back in the taxi having at least seen this building or shall I take things further? Well, me being me, I decided what's the worst that can happen? They could either throw me out for trespassing or they could listen to what I had to say. So I went in and I asked to speak to whoever was in charge of the building and a rather portly gentleman came to reception and he said, what do you want? He was a little bit belligerent, actually. I said to him, look, I've come to claim my family's building. And he laughed at me. And he said, don't be ridiculous. This building has been owned by the transport ministry and the railways for decades. And I said, no, I don't think it has. And I pulled out of my pocket this one-page advert. And I said, look, H. Wolf, that's the name of my grandfather, Herbert, and of his grandfather, Hyman, who founded the company in 1850. And this was their building. And he paled and he said, Oh, I think you'd better come in. And he ushered me through the turnstile and took me into their canteen. He said, you sit here and wait. I'm going to phone head office, which in those days was in Bonn. And when he came back 20 minutes later, he was a changed man. And he said to me, you're right. We've been waiting for this to happen. But the people in Bonn told me that they didn't know whether anybody had survived the war. Tell me your story. So I did. And I sat and told him, the whole history of what had happened and all the stories I'd heard from Nelly, at the end of which he said something quite remarkable. In fact, he said two things. He said, one, you know, the people who work here still refer to it as the wolf building, but nobody really knew why. Well, of course, I knew why. And then he said, you must get this building back for your mother. You must. At which point I confessed to him that actually I had no proof whatsoever. I had nothing, no documents whatsoever to prove that the family had once owned this building. And he said to me, the documents exist. You go out there and find them, but they do exist. It was a challenge and I had to rise to it. So I phoned my husband who was back in London. I said, you better sit down. They tell me that they knew that this was owned by the family. So now the challenge for us is to find the documents to prove the case. Now, my mother was very, very hesitant. She really didn't want to embark on any of this. Uh, she didn't want to stir up old ghosts and memories. You know, she forged a new life. She didn't want to look back. But I felt that I owed it to Nellie's memory. Nellie had died in 1977, and I'd really put it all out of my mind. But it all came rushing back, of course. And I thought, well, I owe it to her to get to the bottom of this and, and see what I can do. So the hunt began for documents. And were the Germans uh, cooperative with you? On the whole, yes. That We had a few hiccups. It wasn't always a smooth path. We had to hire lawyers in London to represent my mother because I'm not a lawyer, I'm a journalist. And they uh, said there are three things that you need to prove. We had to prove that the Wolf family had actually owned the building as opposed to rented it. We had to show that the family had lost the building due to Nazi persecution, that it wasn't just a normal sale. And we had to prove who the rightful inheritors were. Now, Nellie had always claimed that she was an inheritor, but I needed evidence. That was the challenge before me. And how long did it take for you to get resolution? Essentially, I got all the paperwork together to prove the case within about two years. We got documents from the land registry that showed that the Victoria Insurance Company uh, had foreclosed on the building. I found a spectacular addendum to the land registry documents, which was that the Soviet occupation authorities had, in 1948, stated this building was taken from Jews, do not sell it. 
They went around looking at the buildings, went through their records and determined whether they had been seized from Jews. And they had registered in the land registry saying, "This we will use this building, but you mustn't sell it because it was owned by Jews. We have to sort out the provenance. So you had the records, and now the German government was cooperating with you with some roadblocks, as you've, as you've described. Uh, this was one of the largest claims that was registered in Berlin, and the Berlin authorities kept putting my mother's file to the bottom of the pile because they didn't really want to pay out on this huge building, which they wanted to retain. During all this process, the German government was moving from Bonn to Berlin. The capital of Germany moved to Berlin. And during this, uh, the time when I was investigating it all, uh, the Ministry of Transport took over the building. And in fact, the minister himself for Germany had his office in there. And they didn't really, uh, they did keep putting up obstacles saying, we need yet more paperwork, we need more proof, and on and on it went. So I'm afraid I did start generating some publicity. I was working at the BBC, the BBC did a radio documentary on it. Uh, I got newspapers writing articles about what is going on, you know, why the prevarication. And finally, in 1996, uh, over five years uh, since I started on this, the bureaucrats agreed that, yes, had the Nazis not come to power, the family would never have lost the building. And they made an offer to buy it back. They didn't want to give it back because by then they had all sorts of um, German Ministry of Transport officials working in there. So they made an offer to, to buy it off my family. Is the German Transport Ministry still working there? No, it is now part of the German Federal Ministry of the Interior Building and Homeland, HIMAT. But it is a German federal ministry, and if you go on the German Ministry of the Interior website, you will see a photograph of the six-story building, which was taken from the Wolf family. And have you toured the building a few times? I have been round it, yes. It's been massively modernized, obviously. They have destroyed the front. There were two magnificent archways, both at the back and at the front, with little carvings round uh, of what looked like sea creatures. Well, the front of the building, they've taken that down. It's now a very ugly rectangular entrance. But if you go to the back of the building in Schutzenstrasse, you can still see the old archway with the original sculptures. Now, I've got an old uh, 1910 architecture magazine article which shows exactly how it looked in 1910, both at the front and the rear. And the rear is identical. So that archway with the carvings has survived two world wars and the communist era, and it is still absolutely immaculate. That is absolutely remarkable. Yes. My impression is that your first priority was to take care of your family. Yes. Um, it wasn't only my mother who was the claimant. Uh, my mother had a brother and sister, and he, she also had a half-brother because Herbert, Nellie's husband, had remarried uh, in Israel and had a son. So it was divided up amongst the children. So my mother uh, and her siblings all got a share. Now you've told this story fairly widely, and I imagine you get a whole gamut of reactions to it. Yes. Uh, in fact, I, I've spoken in Germany and 
in England and in Australia and New Zealand and a lot all over America. The US Holocaust Memorial Museum absolutely love the story and have taken me on tour with them. And everywhere I've been, I get people coming up to me from the audience saying, look at these photographs, look at this paperwork, this is my family's building or my family's house or business premises or land and it's all been lost and how do we get it back? And they ask me for help. Well, I'm not a lawyer, I can't help them. I can point people in the right direction but it is a tragedy that still, you know, 75 years on, we are still looking at cases where people have lost their property and now they're the heirs of those, most of them, of course, of original owners have died. They still want to try and get it back. Well, it's almost impossible. All across Eastern Europe, it's a real struggle. Dina, how did this experience change you? I think it's opened my eyes to the huge story and the huge injustice that has, has per- been perpetrated in terms of the theft. Less than 20% of all the stolen property from the Jews has ever been restituted. That's a staggering figure. So I try to help people. I do have a long list of places where people can research and where they can inquire. Uh, The Holocaust Museum was immensely helpful to me. You know, my mother's uh, uncle, her father's brother stayed in Berlin managing the family's affairs as best as he could and uh, the Holocaust Museum actually found where he was and what he was doing until he was deported to Auschwitz in 1943. If there was a thought you wanted to leave people, uh, what would that be? I think people should talk to their parents and grandparents, record them if they can because they have fascinating stories and once they've gone, it's gone for good. So listen to what your grandparents are telling you. It's a fascinating part of your own heritage. And how it's changed me, it's made me very determined, more determined than I was, and I was always pretty determined. Uh, It's made me grateful that I did it because I can pass this story on to my children. I know that it helped my mother in her old age. She never, ever wanted to go into an old people's home, a nursing home. She had a horror of that. So with the money that she got from the rest, restitution case that I launched, she could stay in her own home and she could have a live-in carer and um, it made her life much easier. Well, thank you very much, Dina. A pleasure. That was my conversation with Dina Gold and I am so appreciative that Dina took the time to share her experience with us. Now, after we talked, Dina and I had an additional conversation about the insurance company involved in her story and some very recent subsequent events. I'd like to share that with you now. So there's an interesting story here about the Victoria Insurance Company. Uh, They were working hand-in-hand with the Nazi regime as the regime went after these buildings. They were the ones that foreclosed on your great-grandfather's property. Isn't that right? Yes, that's correct. In fact, I have lists of many, many other properties in Berlin that the Victoria foreclosed on. Now, the Victoria, I, I did quite a lot of research into their history. The uh, chairman before, during, and after the war was a Dr. Kurt Hammann, and I've discovered quite a lot about him as well. But in the first instance, let me tell you about the Victoria. Apart from foreclosing on Jewish-held mortgages, I discovered, and I actually have the paperwork so I can prove it, that they were part of a consortium of insurers that were insuring, if you can actually believe this, slave labor workshops at Auschwitz 
Buchenwald and Stutthof concentration camps. They weren't insuring the slave labourers, they were insuring the property and its contents. Shocking indeed, but I have the paperwork, there's no denying it. Now, after the war, Dr. Kurt Hamann uh, was awarded Germany's highest civilian honour in 1953, the Federal Cross of Merit. To my mind, that is mind-boggling. And there was a foundation named in his honour at the illustrious Mannheim University, a very, very prestigious university in Germany. Well, when I discovered that, I was straight on to the president of Mannheim University, saying, do you really think that Dr. Kurt Hamann is a suitable person to be honoured in such a fashion with an annual prize in his name and a foundation in German Stiftung? Well, that put the cat amongst the pigeons, I can tell you. And they launched an investigation into it, and then they hired a renowned German economic historian, essentially to research what I'd already said about him. And uh, I can tell you that six months ago, the University of Mannheim officially changed the name of the Dr. Kurt Hamann Foundation and renamed it, as they also did for the prize. So that was the end of the Dr. Kurt Hamann Foundation. So thank you very much. A pleasure. Nice to talk to you. Thank you, Dina. Thank you, dear listeners. We will talk to you soon with a new episode of So Important. 